Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and while this episode of the podcast is not necessarily a second part of our previous episode, it might help for you to go back and listen to last month's episode first if you haven't already done so, covering the Lisa Marie Kimmel disappearance from Wyoming in 1988. Lisa's case was solved several years later, but there are many who believe that her killer may also be responsible for the deaths of several other women in the same part of Wyoming. Whether or not that is true, this much is true. Dozens of women have gone missing over the years from the same part of the American West. And while one man is likely not responsible for every single case, it's certainly possible that a so-called Great Basin serial killer may be responsible for many of them. Many of those cases have never been solved, and the Great Basin serial killer, if there is one, may still be free and alive today. That's what we'll be examining on this month's episode, and as always, listener discretion is advised. The Great Basin is a massive expanse of the western U.S., It extends from southeastern Oregon, east to southwest Wyoming, and south to Utah and Nevada, all the way to the California border. Humans have inhabited the Great Basin for at least 12,000 years, most prominently the Shoshone and Utes Indian tribes, among others. The United States gained ownership of the basin when Mexico seceded the land in 1848. And the area's first non-indigenous settlements in modern-day Utah came into existence around the same time, as did the homesteading followers of the Mormon religion. Then the railways came to the basin 20 years later, and the Great Basin was connected to the rest of the country again in the 1950s and 60s with the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act. This was the birth of America's interstate highway system, which connected every city in the country with a population of more than 50,000 at the time with 40,000 miles of paved highway. This initiative reshaped the American landscape, the economy, and our society like nothing else had in the previous hundred years, since the railways first linked our east to our west. The price tag for this endeavor was immense, $100 billion at the time, which, adjusted for inflation, would be nearly $1 trillion today. But it did have several key benefits to American life, and it shaped the America that we know today. The interstate system created jobs locally and spawned entire industries nationally. It allowed for easy travel. It allowed for an agriculture renaissance in the country's vast expanse of rural areas. But nobody who conceived of or was involved in the construction of the interstate highway system in the 50s and 60s could have imagined how it might change murder in America just as much. The interstate highway system, it can now be said in hindsight, also paved the way for America's most prolific years of serial killing. Killers could never before roam and kill as easily, and at a time when law enforcement wasn't even aware that this sort of killer existed. The term serial killer wasn't even coined until the 80s. Many other potential contributing factors added to the phenomenon as well. It's been said that World War II, for example, 
had a negative effect on the American psyche, for one, and especially on the children of the soldiers who returned from war in the 40s and were finding life in America in the 50s difficult to adjust to. And let's remember, too, that our practice and understanding of psychiatry in the 1950s was not much further along than our understanding of serial murder was. It's even been theorized that the increased exposure that most Americans had to lead-based fuels in those automobiles, which were now being driven much more often, contributed to the overall rise in crime in general during this time. It was, in short, a brewing perfect storm for serial murder. And those among us who act on those psychological imbalances and twisted biological predispositions were certainly free to do so in the 80s and 90s as never before, without much chance at all of being caught. A killer could find a victim and be nearly a thousand miles away in two or three days, oftentimes before police had even located or identified the body. And when an investigation did get underway, what forensic evidence could police use to link their case to a man who wasn't from the area and was no longer in the area? DNA forensics was in its infancy. Police had localized fingerprint databases, many of which were not linked together across jurisdictions at this point. So unless a killer left some kind of identifying possession at the scene, or a witness was able to jot down a license plate number, the chances of a serial killer's crime eventuating in his arrest then seem shockingly slim to us looking back today. It was the heyday of serial murder in America, the 1980s and 1990s. Eventually, as law enforcement nationwide became more familiar with the phenomenon, serial killing reached its apex in the 1990s and began to slow a little into the 2000s. But it took the FBI and others a bit longer to realize that this relatively new discovery of criminality had been incubated by the interstate highway system. In the early 2000s, with the advancement of data analysis through technology, the pieces started to come together. In 2004, an analyst from the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation detected a crime pattern. The bodies of murdered women were being dumped along the Interstate 40 corridor in Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, and Mississippi. That single statistical observation made by that one OBI agent eventually led to an entire subset of the FBI's criminal profiling unit called the Highway Serial Killings Initiative. It was founded to raise awareness among the public and among law enforcement about this phenomenon. Quickly, the FBI identified more than 750 unsolved homicides of victims that were found near an interstate highway over the previous 40 years. And these are only the known cases, and there could have been many more, but for some perspective, that's one interstate highway killing every two weeks for 40 years. And several of those cases, which have been identified in the western U.S., are believed to be the victims of one man. In 1997, an 18-year-old Wyoming woman was found dead beside a highway on-ramp in Idaho. Tanya Teske was from Shoshone, but was last seen in no less than three states in the final days of her life. She'd had a run-in with police at a truck stop in the Four Corners region of Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The officers who spoke with her there suspected that she was soliciting truck drivers for sex. 
Those officers who spoke with her then, just days before her death, noted how young she was and how misguided she seemed to be. Tanya had been in trouble with the law since she was a teenager back in Wyoming. She'd stopped going to school a few years before and left her home in Shoshone on August 10th, headed for Casper. From there, it's believed she made her way to Billings, Montana on the same day. Thumbing rides for motorists, but mostly truck drivers, she had subsequent run-ins with police in Utah and Montana, and she was last seen in Big Sky on the night of August 13, 1997. When she'd been questioned at the truck stop, Tanya was wanted in Utah for forging a check that she'd used to pay for pizza. Again, Tanya was 18 at the time, and had she just been a few months younger, she would have been detained as a juvenile for this offense. But ironically, as an adult, with the officials in Utah deciding not to go through the expense of extraditing someone for writing a $50 forged check, Tanya Teske was instead released from police custody. And within a week's time, her naked body was found alongside Highway 20 in Idaho. So far as we know, Tanya's killer was never arrested. Several other women's bodies were found in eerily similar circumstances across several western states throughout the 80s and 90s, in cases that we'll talk about in a moment. But part of what makes the Great Basin serial killer as a case so difficult to quantify, to organize, to pin down is because the assumption that there was only one is not a safe assumption. In fact, it's all but certain that more than one man is responsible for several cases that we'll mention just in this episode. As it's unlikely that one man is responsible for all of these deaths, and maybe even two is a stretch, we may be talking about several killers, whether or not they are serial killers of more than one victim. Could be upwards of dozens of men who over 40 years have killed women along interstate highways in the western U.S. Makes looking into the Great Basin serial killer as an entity difficult. But odds are good that many, if not most, of those men were, at the time they committed their murders, professional truck drivers. As the FBI put it in 2016, quote, If there is such a thing as an ideal profession for a serial killer, it may well be as a long-haul truck driver. Unquote. This is not to impugn the essential profession of professional drivers by any means. Clearly, the colossal majority of our nation's truck drivers are hardworking, honest, decent people. The vast, vast, vast majority. But the FBI has been able to find a link. And many convicted serial killers were indeed truck drivers at the time they committed their offenses. Most notably, Keith Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer, was a Canadian truck driver who raped and killed prostitutes along highways in the U.S. and Canada over five years in the 90s. And at least 25 other prolific serial killers still in prison today committed their murders while they were driving over the road. Of those 750 murders along interstate highways that we mentioned a while ago, there have been about 500 suspects identified by the FBI in those 750 murders at one point or another, and the plurality of those 500 suspects were truck drivers by vocation. But of course, truck drivers aren't the only people who frequent America's interstate highway system. On November 16, 1993, a traveler who'd stopped to stretch his legs on northbound I-80 at the Shafter exit in Elko County, Nevada, discovered a severely beaten body. There's a woman who'd been shot twice. She was sprawled nude along the side of the highway. 
Investigators estimated at the time that the body had been at that location for nearly a week before it had been found. To this day, the woman is known only as the Elko Jane Doe, or sometimes the Shafter Jane Doe. Not only does her murder remain unsolved to this day, but even her identity remains undetermined. Elko's Jane Doe had been about 27 years old, and her teeth were in excellent condition. It appeared that this woman may have been from means or had personal means herself. Her fingernails had been professionally painted. She had a 2-inch by 4-inch mark on the back of her right calf, which might have been a burn scar or a birthmark. The gunshot wound to her chest and back came from a small to medium caliber handgun. But despite the severe beating and the wounds, there was no sign of sexual assault. To the eternal credit of investigators in this case, the Elko Jane Doe has never been forgotten. Sixteen years after she was found, police conducted scientific testing on their Elko Jane Doe's hair, and the isotope testing that they conducted could determine fairly specifically where she had spent the last years of her life leading up to her death, and the testing told police that Elko's Jane Doe had lived much of her life in Southern California and Arizona and New Mexico. But notably, the testing further revealed that she'd also lived near the town of Afton, Wyoming, in the far western part of the state, for several months in 1993 leading up to her body being found. And if you have any information about a woman with that 2-4 to four inch birthmark or scar on the back of her calf, and who lived in Lincoln County, Wyoming for several months in 1993, please contact the Elko, Nevada Sheriff's Department. The Great Basin killings continued beyond the death of Elko's Jane Doe in 1993, but they started much earlier. In 11 months, over 1992 and 1993, four female bodies were found across the central part of the state. The first was found in April of 1982 and consisted only of skeletal remains of a female in her late 20s Injuries were found to her upper arm, rib cage, and left ankle. That victim has still not been identified. Four months later, 20-year-old Belinda Grantham's remains were found in the North Platte River. Belinda was from Douglas, Wyoming, and had told friends earlier in the summer she'd planned to move to Kansas. A rope attached to a heavy rock had been tied around her neck in an effort to submerge her body. At the time, police announced they had a suspect and a motive in the case, but that was more than 35 years ago, and the murderer of Belinda Grantham has yet to be identified. Just a month after Belinda's body was found in the North Platte, in September 1982, the remains of 18-year-old Naomi Kidder from Buffalo, Wyoming, were found by a rancher about 100 yards off a rural road in Natrona County. She'd been strangled with a wire ligature. She'd told her parents that she'd planned to hitchhike home from Rollins, but was never seen again. Her body was not identified immediately, and 12 years after her parents reported her missing, funeral services for Naomi Kidder were finally able to be held. The following spring, Janelle Johnson's body was found on a rural road south of Shoshone. Janelle had left Riverton for Denver to see about a modeling job. Her roommate had reported her missing after a few days when she hadn't come back, and her body was found two weeks later. The body had been buried at the location, but water from a nearby stream had quickly exposed the remains to the surface. That body was also found naked, with all of her personal possessions missing, and she'd also been strangled to death. But in Janelle's case, there was at least something for police to go on. A truck driver, one of the good ones, 
who, by the way, later lost his job for coming forward and telling his story to police because by giving Janelle a ride to Denver, he had broken with company policy. But because that driver came forward, investigators were able to trace her trip and they learned that Janelle did in fact make it to Denver and that she kept her modeling appointment there, but was abducted sometime later on the way back. Their investigation into the Johnson homicide led to an unidentified suspect who they felt confident had killed Janelle. Their suspicions centered around a bite impression that was also found on her body, and the impression showed that her assailant was missing a tooth on one side of his jaw. But after convening a coroner's inquest and submitting that dental evidence for laboratory testing, no arrest was made in the case. The dental bite mark was reportedly consistent with their suspect, but it was not considered to be conclusive proof, and that's all the evidence police had in the case. That suspect has never been named publicly, and the murder of Janelle Johnson, like the four others in Wyoming from the previous 12 months, remains unsolved. Last month, we told you the story of the Little Miss murder, the name given to the case of Lisa Marie Kimmel, who disappeared while on a trip home from Colorado to Montana. Her murder remained a cold case until DNA profiling eventually linked a prison inmate named Dale Wayne Eaton to her kidnapping, rape, and murder 14 years after the fact. And that led investigators to the most valuable piece of evidence in the case, Kimmel's missing car, which bore her distinctive personalized license plate that gave the case its name, Lil Miss. Once he was finally identified as Kimmel's killer in 2002, some aspects of Eaton's killing of Kimmel jumped out to FBI profilers, who by this time had gathered an understanding of how serial murderers operated. The successful concealment of Lisa's car, the fact that Kimmel had been previously bound, but was later found without any bindings present, and the very strategic placement of the stab wounds as to inflict the most lethal damage, all those were signs to FBI experts that Dale Wayne Eaton was an organized killer and had done this before, perhaps several times before. And authorities got a further glimpse into Eaton's M.O., after one attack where the victims actually survived. When Dale Wayne Eaton was found beaten nearly to death by the butt of a rifle on a dirt track road off Interstate 90 near Rollins, Wyoming, police initially thought that he was the victim, maybe of a robbery. Eaton was a middle-aged man with no criminal past, and he appeared relatively harmless at first glance. But then police heard what a woman named Shannon Breeden had to say and they quickly realized that Eaton had actually been the instigator of the attack, and that the three other people involved in the incident were very lucky to have escaped with their own lives. Shannon Breeden and her husband, along with their five-month-old son, were driving from Michigan to Washington State in 1997, when their van broke down on Interstate 80, about 40 miles west of Rollins. The family tried unsuccessfully to get passing motorists to stop and assist them all night, and they were forced to spend the entire night on the side of the highway. But the next morning, a man pulled up in a van and offered assistance. Weary from the entire incident and short on drinking water by this point, and just eager to get on with their trip and off the side of the road, Shannon and her husband accepted this sort of off-putting strange man's offer to drive them to civilization. After a while of driving on the interstate, Eaton said he had to relieve himself, and he pulled the van off the side of the highway. When he came back, 
He then asked Shannon to hop in the driver's seat as he was tired and wanted to rest for a while. Shannon did, and after just a moment of driving down the road, out of the corner of her eye, she could see that Eaton was holding something. It was a rifle, and it was pointed at Shannon's husband and infant son. Eaton then told Shannon to drive down a desolate dirt track road, as perhaps he might have done to dozens of other women before her. Instead of complying, Shannon Breeden slammed her foot on the accelerator and yanked the wheel of the van. Surprised, Eaton reached across for the car keys to try to turn off the ignition. The van came to a stop and in the commotion, Shannon's husband, carrying their son, was able to escape from the van. Meanwhile, in the front seat, Shannon was still struggling with Eaton. He'd reached under the seat and retrieved a knife. As Eaton was threatening Shannon with a knife, her husband was able to get a hand on the rifle and struck Eaton hard on the head with the wooden butt of the gun. Shannon's husband struck Eaton a few more times, several more times, until Eaton finally said he'd had enough. The Bredens collected themselves and called police. Dale Wayne Eaton, by way of explanation for what he had done, told police he had cancer or some other sort of life-threatening disease and that he wanted to die, but that he didn't have the guts to do it himself. In other words, suicide by stranger. But FBI investigators disagree. They say it's hard to imagine how such a brazen abduction attempt could have possibly been Eaton's first such incident. In fact, they believe Eaton had done it several times before, maybe even dozens of times before, and that the victims of those abductions never lived to tell their story. Shannon Breeden, who later testified about her ordeal in court, believes that had she not acted as she had and forced a physical confrontation with Eaton, that she and her husband and son would have died at the end of that dirt road off I-80. It's hard to imagine otherwise. It also gives us the rarest insight that we have into a potential serial killer, the victim who escapes. If federal authorities are correct, and Dale Wayne Eaton is indeed responsible for other unsolved murders, then Shannon Breeden was able to give authorities and the rest of us a play-by-play account of a serial killer and an insight into his victim's last moments alive. Maybe Shannon Breeden's account offers some insight into what Lisa Marie Kimmel or Janelle Johnson or, or Naomi Kidder or Belinda Grantham experienced. All four were last seen along interstates and highways in Wyoming. Dale Wayne Eaton is 75 years old now, and he's the only inmate on Wyoming's death row. Recent legal rulings have made it possible that Eaton may face execution for Lisa Marie Kimmel's death in the coming years. His mental health is in question, but some authorities are holding out the slim hope that a looming execution might incentivize Eaton to confess to any other murders he's committed, or any other disappearances that he might be responsible for. Perhaps like that of Amy Robechtel, who went for a run in the mountains above Lander, Wyoming, on July 24, 1997, and was never seen again. One of the investigators in Amy's case told me that Dale Wayne Eaton's brother, came forward with information that Eaton had been camping at a family site about a mile from where Amy's abandoned car was found. But no concrete link to Dale Wayne Eaton from Amy's disappearance has ever been established, at least not so far. She's been missing 22 years, 9 months, and 10 days as of the release of this episode. 
Between 1983 and 1997, at least nine women between the ages of 18 and 35 were violently assaulted and dumped along the remote highways of the Great Basin. The FBI believes at least two men are likely responsible for the killings. Many investigators believe that Dale Wayne Eaton is one of them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. This is one episode I'd especially love your feedback on. You can reach out to me and share your thoughts and your theories and your observations right now on Twitter at Wyoming Podcast. If you prefer email, it is wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. Also, thanks to our latest Patreon supporter, Phoebe. And thank you so much for your support, Phoebe. We do have a small but vital group of Patreon supporters who financially support the production of the show every month with $10. And in return, they get first access, early access to every episode. So thank you to Phoebe and all of our Patreon supporters. If you are able to help out there, it is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Wyoming podcast. I do apologize for the delay in this month's episode, guys. Among everything else that's going on in the world right now, my wife has determined that we are buying a house out here in Minnesota so and selling our own. So not by way of an excuse, but that's been the cause of the unusual delay in the release uh, in this episode. But let's not make that a habit, shall we? I do hope all is well with you and yours. I think we're starting to see the lights, distant light maybe at the end of the tunnel, our current situation. But make sure that you use some of this quarantine time to check out some of the other great shows on the 10Cast Network. You are sure to find something that you'll like at county10.com. And for all the great people there at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. <laughs>